Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Greetings to one and all. I'm Peter J. Welcome back to Toward a More Perfect Union. We discuss all manner of things pertaining to society, the law, medicine, whatever happens to be important, and what we do to move society along in a better, higher direction. Today, we have a new kid on the block joining us, and we are privileged to have us greet Chris Wolf. Chris, good morning. Good morning. Chris spent 34 years with the BBC and also in collaboration with WGBH uh, and their program, The World. And on BBC World Service, uh, he spent a fair amount of time uh, working in radio and in news. Uh, and he also spent a bit of time on the road, which is also going to be an interesting discussion, which uh, Chris will be able to elaborate on. He is an author of a wonderful book, uh, which is Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush. Now, I... I need to take a moment, Chris, just to let you know that I, as an expert black belt in bumbling, probably could not rise to the occasion that you went through. I tend to bumble in places like malls. <laughs> so, so it's nowhere near as intimidating. <laughs> we'll let you elaborate. With us this morning, our representative on the Hill, the illustrious Jeff Roy. Good morning, Jeff. And Good morning, Pete. And I just um, hoping that nobody's firing at you when you're in the malls. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> there is that, isn't there? And of course, we have Dr. Natalie Alinos with us. Good morning. Morning, Pete. Good morning, and, Chris. And Dr. Michael Walker Jones. Good morning, Good morning to one Chris. and all. Good morning, morning to one Pete. and to all. So Hi, all. I met Chris last week when he was uh, getting together to have a really nice discussion about his book with uh, Steve Sherlock. And I showed him the, uh, what can I call them? The palatial yet not overly ostentatious studio and offices of Franklin Radio. <laughs> so- uh, That's a very good description. Thank you. And, and so uh, he playing in a significantly larger sandbox than we're accustomed to, thought that it would be interesting for me to try to draw him in, if you will. <laughs> so as part of my bold plan. And that said, Floor is open for discussing all manner of things. Obviously, there's been a lot on our plate uh, with what's been going on in the Ukraine. Uh, you know, world world issues at this point are front and center. Uh, COVID hopefully is in the rearview mirror. Please and thank you. Um, and uh, if there was ever a point where you can draw up the, the pithy phrase, history repeats itself, I think we're staring that one in the face right now. And so that said, as we cheer on Ukraine, hope for the best, pray we avoid the worst, it harkens back to things that we've known in past confrontations, uh, Afghanistan, World War II, 
Korea. Those things, you know, obviously are horrific. Some dragged on far longer than we would have liked any of them. But so now we're basically 30 days in with what's going on in the Ukraine. And we all hope for a quick resolution. And there are some already forecasting that, well, not so fast, this one's going to take a while. And of course, along with that, uh, we face the specter of more damage, more death, more of all the things that war does to destroy a society. So the floor's open. Who wishes to jump in? I'll jump in. And Chris, welcome. It's inevitable that those of us who are in the media, uh, and especially journalists, sometimes have to make decisions regarding where do you go? What do you do? Um, and let me ask you, uh, you've had a very wide ranging career. And when you were in Afghanistan, and maybe give us a little bit more in terms of how you chronicled this in your book, when you were in, in Afghanistan, it was a hot war going on. And here you are now. Uh, and I think what you said was that this was the first time you had been a journalist in a war zone. So here you are becoming a, a uh, chronicler of the atrocities as well as uh, having to duck and dodge. What was that like? Because when I see correspondents who are in a war zone, even if they have helmets and flak jackets, I mean, it makes me shiver to think what these folks are trying to brave through. So give us a little bit of your insight. What was it like? Thank you. Well, uh, it's terrifying. It can be. And um, there's different people react in different ways. Uh, some people thrive on the adrenaline and, you know, enjoy the thrill of it, much like you might enjoy a terrifying roller coaster, except this one could be fatal. Um, uh, other people I know, at least one distinguished correspondent who, um, I, if I can speak freely now, because I'm not going to identify anybody, probably some kind of um, sociopath or psychopath because they don't feel seem to appear to feel anything. Um, and then um, other people do suffer uh, trauma over the longer run. And that's what breaks my heart is I was running correspondence in war zones and um, ensuring their safety, making sure they had training, first aid and all the kit that they need that you see on display and a backup plan, a communications plan. And um, all of that still, uh, I'm very proud to say that everyone I sent out came home in one piece, but a few of them had trauma because that's inevitable with war because you, it's in an action movie, it's the moments of action that are most memorable, but in a war zone, it's waiting around wonder or wondering what's gonna happen next. It's the stuff that's uh, probably more terrifying because you just don't know. And it's how you deal with that that can affect, uh, well, affected me, but affected other people uh, in the longer term. So it's both an honor and a privilege and um, a sacrifice and a, a dangerous one for all those people out there. So um, hope you gives that gives you some insight. I can talk in more detail, but don't want to monopolize. I can jump in, um, Chris. I worked at the UN for about a decade, and I think it's important, you know, and I, I lived in Beirut, um, not during difficult times, although I was there when Hezbollah took over Beirut, and it was, you know, stressful, but there was a mix of, you know, aid workers uh, who went from conflict to conflict, journalists. Um, I do think it's a career that people choose, but I, I think there's a distinction. I think for aid workers, 
there is something you are doing at the moment. You know, you're providing water to refugees and food. And for journalists, you're recording and, and being witness and bearing witness. But I wonder if that distinction of like, you're not actually, you know, helping. And I, I have heard stories, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, of like war photographers in, you know, Darfur and places who are photographing some tragedy. And yes, that gets media attention. But if you're not able to do something for that child in front of you that you're photographing, like what that trauma, that trauma, I think, is, is an additional one. And, you know, obviously, aid workers, journalists, you know, the UN, we, we get out when we need to. And, and, you know, the, the, the real trauma is felt by the people who are left behind in wars. And, you know, whether we're talking about Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria, um, and other conflicts in the world. And so it is also that guilt that you can get out, um, and leave and, you know, take your family out. Absolutely. I think that all of that is true. And, um, I remember, uh, my first route education in um, landmines, which is something that people often overlook in um, their understanding of war, um, especially with the uh, Moscow's version of, of waging war. Landmines are pretty much everywhere. And I don't know if people have been seeing them being deployed all over Ukraine as well now. And that's a generation of misery right there that's being planted. Uh, uh, as I mentioned in the book, I checked the latest figures, and I think it's still something like 2,500 Afghans every year are wounded and killed by um, mines laid by the Soviet Union in the 1980s. So uh, that's going to be a lot, a long-term problem. But for the trauma, so with the mines, I remember my first day in Afghanistan outside of the capital, and I was about to step, we had a, we we're on a piggybacking on a humanitarian aid convoy, and we stopped for a uh, comfort break, shall we say, and I see a little copse of trees, and I'm about to head over to make myself comfortable there, and the uh, guy from the mine safety uh, aid group where we were with grabs me by the shoulder and pulls me back and says, you don't step into the field because it could be mined. And so we just had to line up and make ourselves comfortable on the tarmac, um, which is you know, another situation altogether. But you're right about the privilege because we had that choice to do that. We had that privilege, but somebody owns that field and farms that field. They have to step out there with their kids and their workers uh, they don't have the choice, and so it's the, that is a is a, a humbling lesson, in uh, really what, what real courage is. You have to feed your family, you have to provide for your family, you have to step into a field that could be littered with landmines, and so um, it's a it's a troubling business. So that can I don't know. It makes me grateful every day when I wake up in a place that doesn't have landmines or a war raging. <laughs> you know, it's just, there's a there's that silver lining too that that kind of experience can make you enjoy and relish uh, every day that you get after. You know, uh, Chris, I had the uh, pleasure of hearing your uh, book talk. And uh, I recall at the um, at the end of the talk and, you know, you had mentioned your family and explaining to them that you were going to go out and make this journey and uh, everything that you encountered along the way. And uh, I remember my question that I asked you at the talk was, what were you thinking? Tell us, <laughs> tell us in this, uh, in this context. I mean, cause you look at these, these situations and the, and the, the danger that's presented and, and boy, it is a valuable tool and resource to have journalists in the field showing the images. It really, um, really displays for us the, the tragedy of war. And um, for the life of me, I'm 60 years old and I still can't understand 
why people get together to bring others down. It's it's something I, I can't wrap my head around. I, I can't wrap my head around the idea of what goes through the mind of Vladimir Putin and even bringing troops into Ukraine. I was I, I think of the, the war crimes that are being committed. And I was seeing, I saw a talk uh, last night about whether the uh, International Criminal Court uh, will bring charges against Vladimir Putin. And they, they were talking about the war crimes that he's committing while in Ukraine. And, and the thought occurred to me, doesn't entering another territory unjustly in it of itself constitute a war crime? Uh, that's my question. That's just a just a, a contextual framework. But uh, I'd love to know, you know, what drove you to, to take this journey, and what drove you to not further uh, take these journeys? Well, so on your last point, the um, yes, yeah, since 1928, it's been a crime against international law to uh, invade another country without provocation. Waging aggressive war is a crime in and of itself. Absolutely. So, and it should be because the world had come out of World War I. And I think that was the thing that shapes, still shapes um, European view of war much more than, than anything else and that trauma. So for myself, well, I grew up like any other boy, you know, ignorant of the world, looking for adventure, been a part-time soldier in the British equivalent of the National Guard. So I thought I knew some things about military stuff, um, which wasn't very helpful really when you entered a real war zone. Uh, except that you could identify some of the threats and identify some of the sounds and things that were going on, which you might not have been otherwise able to. And actually, interestingly, um, so I was more bothered by some situations than my friend who was resident there and had more experience. <clears throat> but anyway, I was at that point in my career where I was eligible to apply for the postings in um, overseas. And I was thinking, well, maybe this is the kind of life I'd like to see. And the, I was curious about Afghanistan. It had been in the news for a long time. It seemed relatively safe in the capital, at least. There was only the occasional shelling and rocket attack. And then, um, so I went to see if I would like the life of a foreign correspondent. And uh, my buddy was working there. So there was those three things, curiosity, uh, see if it was good for my career, and catch up with a buddy. And uh, an assumption that it wasn't going to be particularly dangerous. So yes, that's the bumbling part of the title, because when we hitched a ride with a humanitarian aid convoy, we blundered right into the conflict pretty much as soon as we'd left the city limits. And uh, yeah, it all went downhill from there. But then well, everybody's always in situations where we've got ourselves into a bit of a pickle, but there's no going back. You have to just keep going forward, even if you don't know what it is you need to do or what you're, what you're going to do or what's going to happen next. And you decided at the end of the day, that this was not the career for you. Well, eventually, what was it about it? Uh, fear and terror, personal for my own physical safety and for the ability to provide for my children if anything should happen, what would happen to them, uh, or what it would be like for them to grow up without a father. Um, and then um, something that uh, Natalia was mentioning earlier, the um, I was in Southern Africa, uh, Mozambique, the, as that war was wrapping up as well. And the we went to a refugee camp and my boy was about to turn one. And there was just um, a hospital at the refugee camp and there was the starving baby, you know, the classic image 
that we've all seen with the bloated stomach and the withered arms at the same age as my boy. And it was like, oh, I don't think I could I could be around that. It was too relatable. And so that was another incident where I thought, you know, I'm not really sure I'm cut out for this life. I don't have enough a thick of enough skin to witness and endure and cope with that kind of suffering. In terms of bearing witness, yes, it's a, it's a tough, tough job. This brings to mind the images that we see on a daily basis coming out of Ukraine. And I guess it's, it's impossible for me to understand how we as a civilized society, uh, and one would hope that this spreads around the world, uh, can tolerate not only the kinds of atrocities, but those kinds of images, Chris, that you're describing out of Afghanistan. And I also am concerned and would throw this out to my friends here. I'm concerned about the disparity and the inequity because, uh, albeit Ukraine is a hot war, people are dying on a daily basis. There are war atrocities and crimes being committed every day. I mean, we have a full spectrum of issues where people are being oppressed and are living in situations that are not only dangerous, life-threatening, but deserve our attention. And I'm thinking about Haiti as well as Ukraine. I'm thinking about the remnants of what's going on in Afghanistan, because albeit we're not focused on Afghanistan anymore, with the Taliban now having taken over, they're slowly cranking back up to where they were prior to our entry into the country in terms of their oppression of women. They're going back to their old laws. And what is it then that I guess you and all of us as observers uh, and especially journalists, what's our responsibility to the world uh, to help these situations? Uh, as states or individuals, um, the responses would have to be different. It's it's a tricky one because obviously it's, you know, Jesus has the saying, the poor are always with you. So it's a question of, can you ever provide enough aid to eliminate uh, those that violence around the world? Or can you create more problems by intervening, um, as perhaps we saw by staying too long in Afghanistan? So it's a, that's a really hard one to, to figure out in a, in, a, in a quick radio chat. I remember, we all remember and uh, missing uh, Madeleine Albright, and um, she pretty much shifted U.S. foreign policy in the 1990s um, when the Yugoslav wars were waging in the former Yugoslavia because she was saying, we have this great military and uh, the U.S. had just come out of the first Gulf War with very limited um, goals and had uh, executed its mission relatively well and got out in defense of the principle of upholding international law. And then the Yugoslav wars came along and everyone was responding emotionally to many of the horrors that were being witnessed in the same way the people are responding to the situation in Ukraine. And Madeleine Albright says, well, what's the use of having this military if we're not going to use it? But it took her a long time to persuade the defense establishment and the policy establishment to come around to that. So in the end, there was a more or less successful U.S. mediation uh, kind of enforced by 
the threat of full-on military intervention. So in that case, there was a partial success, but um, I do worry that that led in turn to the thinking that other interventions were going to be justified and you know, that led to uh, the mistaken decision to occupy Afghanistan and, you know, and also to invade Iraq at all. Um, but as you mentioned, Mike, it was also inequitable. For example, the situation in the genocide in Rwanda was happening at about the same time and was entirely neglected by the international community. So, yes, there's an inequitable double standard as well. So, but no, the US, even with all its wealth and resources, couldn't intervene everywhere in the world at the same time. So tough decisions have to be made. It's an interesting think- point. Uh, sorry. It, it's an interesting point, Chris, that uh, there was a wonderful book that I'm going to refer to uh, that was written back in the 80s, which was written by an author named John Nesbitt called Megatrends. And the, the premise behind Megatrends uh, is his way of trying to analyze where the world was going on given issues, what was really trending that was really big, was by measuring the amount of column inches in a newspaper, how big a story was, how small it was, uh, and also the number of minutes. In other words, newspapers can expand and contract a bit, but you still have a total number of column inches devoted to various stories in the course of any given day, week, month. Uh, Television news, notably, Um, You know, that half hour nightly newscast is typically about 18 minutes long with real news in it. And so all of these stories, uh, incidents, circumstances around the world are sifted through that and compete for our attention. And sharper minds than mine uh, try to indicate which stories lead, which stories uh, are prominent, which stories step on other stories. And then Looking at it from the other side, from the viewer's side of it, uh, some stories tend to linger forever. Obviously, we all understand fatigue, fatigue that settles in when a story continues to go on and on and on, or even a class of story continues to go on and on and on, multiple wars, whatever. Witness that we've been dealing with COVID now for two plus years. uh, And that said, our attitude about COVID now has certainly changed, uh, some of it being predicated on the fatigue of its duration. Uh, So what I see is stories that perhaps should have their day in the sun continued or magnified tend to get forced into the backseat by recency of other stories that emerge. Um, I think it's a good thing that Ukraine obviously has come to the forefront. And yet we all know that there are other things, other atrocities going on in the world uh, that are being pushed down. Uh, to A4 and later, it's difficult, I think, for all of us uh, to um, try to remain personally vigilant about what's important in the world in terms of stories. But one thing that I think good journalism does in, in the most global way, good journalism helps that sorting out process. It helps that uh, prioritizing of what's going on. And I think that you know, from individual journalists in the field to those who manage what they're covering, uh, news desks and uh, news executives all sort of share that public responsibility, that charter to uh, help us understand. Same is true also, by the way, with charities. When you talk about uh, when you were in Africa and you were talking about children who are obviously starving, 
uh, and you see the distended stomachs and so on. Those pictures have been around for some time. And we, we as viewers tend to build up, I don't know if the right word is a tolerance, but we build up a tolerance for those unfortunate circumstances. And, and we become a bit hardened. There are people from time to time who ask me about, you know, the news business where, you know, obviously I've been in media in one form or another, but they always seem to ask the question with a smattering of disdain. Uh, they always seem to ask the question as though there is something vaguely nefarious to be uncovered by my answer. Um, and while I think there are occasional gaffes from time to time, I mean, by and large, I think it's an extremely noble profession. And uh, for whatever reasons, people choose to go in the field and bring the story back. Maybe they don't have a direct connection to the person right in front of them as an aid worker would. But I think that when you consider the fact that the aid workers are there, the help is there, public opinion is there in a supportive way because of what they did. Very much like first responders. That's what they are in many respects. Pete, I wanted to jump into Michael's question about sort of the, the inequities. And, you know, I agree with you, like the more recent events, you know, Ukraine, I mean, the, the data is, is shocking. I don't know if you've seen the UN recently released that half of all Ukrainian children have been displaced internally and, and as refugees. So it is like a real tragedy. But I think, uh, Michael, rather than highlighting, you know, how different our response has been, you know, towards Syrians or Afghans, it's the potential of can this response, this actually really impressive response, the EU for the first time ever, um, you know, used this um, temporary protection directive of 2001 that allowed, you know, really responded quickly. People are able to get temporary shelter and housing and job permits and, you know, this kind of really amazingly welcoming response. You know, I work in a center for health and human rights and actually how we're talking about it is one, talking about the inequities and the fact that this hasn't happened before, but also hoping that we can write about it and talk about it as like, now this is the gold standard. This is how we have to move forward in the next crisis. You know, we have seen with the Ukrainian response that countries can get together and be genuinely uh, welcoming and, you know, this notion of responsibility sharing of refugees, this has always been a sticking point. You know, the U.S. will handpick which refugees they will take from from, you know, conflict settings or the EU will say it's, you know, the country of entry. I, I grew up in Greece and Greece is one of those countries of entry that simply are always say like, no, you know, we can't handle it. And therefore they push people back. But now with Ukrainians being allowed to enter and go wherever they want, it's not, you know, responsibility of refugee sort of um, protection doesn't fall on kind of these isolated countries, but as a collective uh, on the EU in this case, as well as other countries. And I do think there is potential for scholars, for journalists to be not only talking about how unequal this is and how it's unprecedented, but also like, okay, we did it. So let's do it again next time. And let's not forget. So there will be another conflict. And then we can say, you know, do you remember how we responded to the Ukrainian crisis? I mean, it's really hard in real life, real time. You know, this is an ongoing tragedy to be, you know, taking notes and lessons learned. But I do think that it's an opportunity not to miss uh, for the future. Oh, I'm sorry. Not Dalia. I, you know, I, I am directly in line with what you're saying. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm 
I guess has been mulling around in my head is that I'm watching here something that, and I agree with you, should be considered as the gold standard now. Um, I watched in uh, a country, uh, and I think it's uh, uh, Hungary, where they have a more right-wing kind of government uh, that, like us, uh, wants to push uh, immigrants and refugees away. However, the people, um, and I don't think we talk about this enough because many of our young folks don't, uh, uh, when you say the term, they don't know. And so I like to, uh, NGOs, uh, they don't understand what that means. NGOs are, are non-governmental organizations. In other words, this is not the government going back to your point, Chris, because we've got individual responses and then we've got government responses. And what I'm watching in Europe gives me hope and solace that we as a people are much more resilient and accepting and embracing than some of our governments are, uh, which uh, when you look at uh, some of the refugees that were pulling across the border and, and the government of Hungary uh, doing nothing, but yet at the rail stations, what was being reported was absolutely, uh, you, you know, to be praised. I, I mean, here are these people setting up uh, not only food station, clothes, uh, transportation, health care, everything that a refugee needs in order to at least help to calm them down when they reach their, uh, uh, their initial destination. And here are these things being put together by basically common people, by organizations that are not part of the government. Uh, and that gives me solace. Uh, and yet at the same time, here we are in the United States and we're still operating under a very antiquated, uh, I think, system where we don't let our humanity come forward. Uh, and in many instances, the government is an impediment to our opening ourselves up and allowing ourselves to be more embracing uh, and accepting. Uh, so uh, I think it's important for all of us uh, and the definition, for example, uh, Pete, I, I mean, I understand when we look at media, but I think we need to rethink the definition of media even because now with a telephone, I can become a reporter. I can show you what's, you know, what's happening. And that's also something too, that has been amazing coming out of Af Afghanistan. And then there are those 24 hour uh, media outlets that are also trying to do more in terms of showing us what's going on. And I think that's a credit to, uh, to our media here in the United States. Uh, I don't know if that's happening in other parts of the world. Some of you guys who are still connected to the international media may know more about that, but, um, uh, but I think we continue, we ought to continue to ask these questions. Where is our humanity uh, uh, in all of these kinds of conflicts? You bring up an interesting one also, by the way, uh, Dr. Mike, with, with respect to the internet. A lot of people remember the Vietnam War as being the first televised war. But more significantly, beyond being a televised war, even though we were looking at film footage typically a day after an incident happened, um, it was also 
a curated war. That is, the information that we were provided was managed by the networks of that day uh, who reported on it as best they could, given the limited facilities, equipment, and other constraints. And um, now we live in a time where, as you say, anyone with a cell phone can engage, um, which gets us to the discussion about disinformation, um, because clearly there are forces that are at work looking to uh, discredit Zelensky, uh, particularly obviously in Russia, but the disinformation that is now generated is, is you know, why can I say it's frightening at best, uh, dangerous um, and world changing at worst. Um, and, um, you know, I keep, I keep coming back to, you know, in these programs, the Jeffersonian principle that an educated public is, you know, the, the, the best thing for democracy. Now, clearly there are people who respond only emotionally without really thinking things through. Um, and I don't know what we can do about trying to find a way to improve the relationship between these, you know, platforms that do this uh, and the individuals who run amok across them um, to get us back to a, a greater, purer truth um, um, and hopefully driving that outcome accordingly. I, uh, you know, I would like us to do more, obviously, with the Ukraine um, and uh, also, too, with Afghanistan refugees, those who helped us over there, who are now still trying to find a way to avoid their fate with the Taliban. Um, but again, as I was talking about earlier, that's a story that has sort of been pushed aside by other more pressing matters or seemingly more pressing matters. The internet seems to be really good at generating chaff. Yes, indeed. You know, um, I, I want to take off on your concept of truth and Michael's concept of humanity. Where is the humanity? Where is the truth? And uh, indeed, I would suggest that is the role of our education system. And there are those um, who are not receptive to topics such as social emotional learning. Um, I was happy that uh, of the uh, 200 members of the great and general court that there were only two who were opposed to the Genocide Education Act. I mean, um, when we uh, passed that in December of 2021, the goal of that was to actually teach about humanity. And there's nothing uh, that I know of in the world that exposes inhumanity more than the topic of genocide. So we try to incorporate those things um, into the educational system. We try to incorporate truth into the ex educational system. We try to incorporate science into the educational system, but we meet resistance. And uh, as delighted that I am that everybody who has a cell phone um, can report information, I would not go so far as to say that every one of them that does that is a reporter, uh, because uh, journalists have standards and ethics that they need to follow. They have editors that screen uh, the information that they prepare, and before it gets out into the public domain, it it goes through multiple levels. My fear with 
uh, a lot of these uh, so-called reporters is they do not have those filters and it leads to this uh, massive amount of uh, disinformation and thus uh, two years ago, we passed legislation uh, requiring media literacy uh, in the school. So, um, you know, education is so important along these lines and discussions like this today only highlight uh, the importance of the educational system and, and the importance of some of the things that we have attempted to do uh, here in the Massachusetts legislature and um, you know, they're difficult concepts to portray and they're difficult concepts uh, for parents and uh, community members to embrace because you hear this mantra of, why don't they just get back to teaching uh, reading and math? Um, you, you know, it, it's a struggle. You know, but Jeff, you're bringing up, I think, uh, a point around critical thinking skills. Uh, you cannot stand in the uh, in the front of that tsunami of uh, and again, no matter how much we'd love to be able to say, well, you define a reporter this way. That phone, that camera, the ability to get onto the Internet uh, gives the license to. Uh, let's say unqualified and qualified reporters. <laughs> okay. And the question becomes, how do you discern that information from truth? Uh, and therein, I think, again, is part of the responsibility of the, uh, of the uh, education system. I cannot teach you all of the ethical standards of a, what a reporter goes through and what a news outlet has to do in order to discern uh, disinformation from real information. But what I can give you is the critical thinking skills to try to discern some of those things for yourself. Uh, and therein, I think, lies the challenge. Uh, if a person, uh, there is a, uh, a reporter who uh, has been giving some insights from Ukraine, and she is Ukrainian, um, and many of the media have picked up on uh, what she's been doing. Uh, and basically, she's a parent uh, who has some training uh, and they're using some of her reports. Now, do I accept that as in terms of what she's presenting as real information or do I accept that as a personal point of view of a person who is not necessarily associated with the media outlet, but who's giving me at least a picture of what's going on around her. Uh, and then there are those media outlets, Fox, uh, MSNBC, CNN, others, uh, the AP, who have journalists who are there and embedded. Uh, and as you said, Chris, uh, literally taking their life uh, and putting their life at risk to give us a report. Somebody. Uh, in terms of what's going on in the uh, uh, in those countries right now, so I think it's important for us to again keep a keep a critical thinking mind and keep our critical thinking caps on all the time, um, and to make sure that we're using multiple media. And what I'm afraid of is in the country. That's not what I'm seeing nationwide here in the U.S. I'm afraid that, especially given some of the things that have been happening, for example, in Florida, 
with the passing of the don't say gay uh, law. Uh, you know, that's another indication of trying to what I think stymie the critical thinking skills of our people, which then lead to some of these what I think are inhumane kinds of results. Chris, I'm going to play a little game here. Um, okay. We've talked about, obviously, where the Internet is, uh, cell phones, et cetera. And the, the, the stage that I will set is January 6th. There were cell phones all over the place, obviously, on January 6th. Many of those cell phones were clearly motivated by the participants who were taking pictures of the action, almost for self-aggrandizement. Knows they were proud of the fact that they were there being disruptive, uh, breaking laws, breaking physical property, and so on, and being recorded as such. <laughs> and to a significant extent, that has obviously now been uh, a tool that's been deployed against them. And so let's, let's consider for a moment this notion that every citizen can participate for noble reasons or ignoble reasons. What might a news department do? in considering a what I'll call a next generation news strategy. What might a news department and even reporters who participate do to encourage citizen participation in real journalism? In other words, you have a cell phone and something happens that you can in fact document. Is there something that the fourth estate in general can do to encourage citizens to understand the basics of journalism, uh, both mechanically and, and uh, topically. Uh, so simple things like, okay, if you're there and you could take pictures, take them this way. This is what we're looking to actually see uh, and to provide examples of such. Uh, and also to give citizens what I will call, you know, call it journalism 101. Is there something, because right now, people randomly submit footage or footage finds its way to a news desk and it may or may not become part of a story. And, you know, we usually see the, the vertical portrait mode of something that somebody grabbed on the fly. Um, I think it would be an interesting proposition to sort of figure out, is it through obviously things like NPPA, National Press Photographers Association, uh, and other uh, governing bodies, uh, trade associations, that might offer guidance in some form. And what do you think that that might look like? Well, that's a uh, would come down to again. If I'll have writing a new or uh, media savviness, as it were, um, about how to help kids learn to deal with that kind of thing, because it is a generational thing. But if you're in the newsroom and uh, you're seeing some um, un, uh, unsourced footage, the uh, questions you ha would have as a credible journalist first for, is it authentic? Is it uh, from today? You know, so if you're a citizen, aspiring citizen journalist, you want to be able to establish somewhere in that footage that hold up today's newspaper or something like that, that shows that it's uh, a contemporary current thing. Through this um, Ukraine crisis, we've all seen clips of um, stirring footage of protesters, for example, confronting Russian troops, um, but on multiple occasions, however stirring it looks. It may be from 2017 or 2014. We don't know. And, and we're getting the emotional response because it feels right and it looks right. 
but it's not. It's a different context, a different situation. So establishing the authenticity. And then um, if it's only a single shot from a single angle, again, the rule at the BBC World Service was two sources. You can't, nothing's true unless, you know, you've got to, two sources, another way to corroborate it. So find another way, uh, another citizen journalist, for example, to film the same thing and film it from a different angle and tell their side of the story, because uh, obviously you're going to have to filter. One person's word isn't, isn't always good enough for uh, it to make a headline. No, I, I think verification is clearly the case. Um, and also even looking beyond that, how might we in the media be more proactive to help people understand how they can tell the story? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, they're not out roaming the streets looking for a news story or assigned to anything. But every once in a while, a citizen may find themselves in the midst of a story in the unlikely circumstance that something happened and they happen to be there. You know, it's happened to me a few times and I've grabbed some snaps or shot a little video, but I also understand a little bit about reportage and covering such things. I, for one, would like to find a way to broaden the scope of that understanding. So people who think that they might be able to contribute something either to a local news outlet, one of the TV stations, or obviously the national level, uh, and that they would be better equipped to do it in the moment, to, to capture the essence of what's going on, uh, maybe even provide a little bit of text potentially, but at least to be there and make a faithful recording. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I mean, I would think in a sense, the, what you're looking for is witness testimony with that. Exactly. Um, so that you want to record uh, in addition to like making sure that you authenticate and verify what you're seeing, uh, you get as many identifying details as possible, whether it's, um, you know, you want to get a policeman's number or a good clear shot of their face if there's abuse taking place or something of that nature. And uh, so th there's all of that potential there. So yeah, uh, the context is key. Uh, so with, with narrative journalism, um, which is something that, in a sense, took off in the 1980s, where you have an emotional story, personal story at the beginning of a report, and then you use that to illustrate uh, and draw people into reading the boring details about the context, about the situation that's going on more broadly. Um, and so my uh, disappointment with the media over the last 30 years or so has been that the need to stimulate the emotions and capture people's feelings has in some cases displaced the, the, the need to provide the context as well. And so people are getting the emotional responses, but there's no context to provide the analytical tools and the, the things you need for critical thinking about the issue that's being represented. So, Yeah, but aren't we somewhat missing, missing the... Uh, what I would call the moving on of some of the rules that we're trying to describe here. I know that, you know, back in, uh, back when I was in high school, and as my children would say, that was just after dirt was invented. Um, 
you know, I was uh, I was on the student newspaper. We learned all these rules as part of our journalism class. Uh, we applied all of the rules. Uh, you know, you got your quill and scroll pin uh, because we were all required to join quill and scroll. We all looked toward, you know, when we get to college, we're going to get onto the college newspaper, et cetera, et cetera. And yet today, uh, I would I would say, uh, Pete, one of the best pieces of journalism, um, and it's an amateur piece of journal journalism. I will uh, I will throw that out there for our listeners immediately. But it had an international worldwide impact. And that's the young woman who took out her phone and filmed the atrocity in uh minneapolis uh one i was thinking of exactly right yeah and and as a matter of fact i think she won a uh a uh a pulitzer for that uh and rightly deserved because here's a young woman who who had who has not had any of exposure to those rules that we're talking about but yet understood at the moment that my role here is, and she didn't say a thing through all of that filming. People around her did, but she did what a good photojournalist does, record and focus on the action, focus on what's going on. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, you know, that's where I would agree that we have to train our young people train ourselves in better critical thinking skills, not necessarily all of the rules of journalism, but just, you know, just be able to ascertain what is the right thing to do, what's the critically uh, uh, appropriate thing to do at this particular moment. Um, and if I am a, uh, a witness, if I am watching a uh, an atrocity, whether it's being committed by a military person or a policeman or just some other authority to another person. My role here uh, is not necessarily to comment except through what I'm trying to record. Uh, now, we don't always see that, but I think it's inherent upon us to teach the uh, that critical thinking skill to our populace. And then let me also say, too, that many of these rules are being broken by the media. Uh, one of the things that just literally sets me off every day is the need for the media to feel as though they've got to have a background picture. And what do they do? They recycle the same pictures over and over and over again, so that when I'm watching uh, what has been reported as uh, a pushback of the Afghan, uh, not the Afghan, but the Ukrainian military of the Russians, they will recycle pictures from weeks ago, days ago. And unless, again, you have either seen or remember that picture, people don't get the idea that, no, that is not in real time. And they don't say in that particular presentation, these pictures are file pictures, you know, and that's a little simple thing to do. Just whenever you, you know, if it's not today, then just put onto the picture that this is a file uh, picture. Uh, 
I have enjoyed this conversation and, you, you know, and Chris, uh, good luck with the book. I, you know, you've got me, uh, you've got my interest peaked, uh, bumbling through the Hindu Kush, uh, a memoir of fear and kindness in Afghanistan. Uh, the author is Chris Wolf, uh, who's here with us today. And he happens to be one of our fellow Franklinites. Uh, so yeah, we'll come and see you, Chris. Uh, and thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Mike. And um, I was going to mention the subtitle, A Memoir of Fear and Kindness in Afghanistan, because that was my editor suggested that to me when she read the manuscript. She was just so struck by how the fact, something we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, how most people retain an incredible humanity and generosity of spirit in the most trying of circumstances, such as war, conflict, and occupation. Um, and um, she was just really struck by that and said, you really have to flag that in the title because, you know, it's just my lived experience. So I hadn't really given it. I wasn't surprised by it because that's just what I was, what I've come to expect. But I think it is genuinely surprising that even a country as, as brutalized and society as brutalized as Afghanistan, most people, 99% retain that humanity, generosity of spirit and kindness that, um, you know, hopefully we all have in our, uh, and we'll continue to have in our more perfect union. Chris, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I too enjoyed the conversation, um, but Michael alluded to some pieces at the end of um, his comments that uh, I think are a teaser for a future show. And if you're willing, I'd love to have you come back and talk about the state of journalism and the rules and all of those pieces uh, and where journalism is headed today. And since you've had such an active career uh, in that space, we'd, I, I think that's another show. And would you come back? I'd be honored, yes. And I think the, um, I'm, the, one of the best things about being an ex-journalist is that I can speak my mind freely. Um, for years, I've been trying to be, you know, the, you remember the gold standard of being objective and neutral and just let the facts speak for themselves. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I try yeah. to adhere to that. Fully, hey, you know, no, free to let your hands no pins, nothing to just, just, just betray any any secret uh, thoughts or loyalties. But uh, yeah, being out of the business has been very liberating uh, for sure. So as long as people understand that I'm uh, an ex-journalist and uh, speaking freely as a citizen. Well, Chris, just when you thought you were out, we're going to drag you right back in. <laughs> Kicking and screaming. <laughs> I'll do my best. You've been listening to A More Perfect Union. Today, we have had the extreme pleasure of having Chris Wolf join us. Look for his book, Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush. Uh, it's a great read, uh, strong recommend. I'm Peter J. For Representative Jeff Roy, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and Dr. Natalie Alinos, and our guest, Chris Wolf. Thanks for listening. This is Franklin Public Radio.